Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Wednesday, February 7th. I'm Michael Guidry in for Desiree Frazier, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, the Mississippi Supreme Court is considering if allocating coronavirus relief dollars to private schools violates the state constitution. Then an author examines the journal and life story of a black barber from Natchez. He's speaking at today's History is Lunch. Plus, MPB Television and Think Radio are celebrating the state's rich culture of gospel music. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. The Mississippi Supreme Court is weighing whether appropriating public money for private schools is a violation of the state's constitution. The state legislature created a $10 million grant program in 2022 that would allow exclusively private schools to get federal coronavirus relief dollars. But the Mississippi Constitution states that the legislature is prohibited from sending any money to schools that aren't considered free also meaning public. The law was overturned by courts in Hines County, and arguments for the appeal were given to the state Supreme Court yesterday. Buck Doherty is an attorney with Liberty Justice Center and defended the appropriation on behalf of the Mid-South Association of Independent Schools. This court should reverse the Chancery Court of Hines County, and it should do so for three reasons. First, Mays had the right to intervene as a matter of right. Its intervention papers were timely, under precedent of this court, the motion was filed a mere 57 days after the lawsuit commenced. Mays had $10 million at stake and attempted to intervene in this case as an intervening defendant. And it staked out a significantly different defense, a legal defense, than, this, than our friends from the state. The state had argued that Section 208 was not implicated because of the way the control of the funding and so forth played out. Of course, the plaintiff, Parents for Public Schools, they argued that Mays could not receive $10 million from the legislature because of Section 208. Mays attempted to intervene to say, yes, Mays can receive this $10 million because this Section 208, which was the legal vehicle that the plaintiff relied upon for their claim, that violates the United States Constitution. It's a Blaine Amendment, and as we pointed out in our briefing, both at the trial court in our attempt to intervene, as well as before this court, there's a long history 
of Blaine Amendments, and specifically the Blaine Amendment of Mississippi's Constitution of 1890, clearly uh, had hostility toward Catholic schools and the communities they served, such as newly freed slaves. The second point, uh, obviously the state is our friend, and they have attempted to make an argument in order for Mays to receive the $10 million in appropriation. But likewise, Mays also argues in its second issue that the plaintiff does not have standing under the Rojo factors of this court that has set down the funds at issue were clearly federal COVID relief funds. They were not state funds. And there were no funds that was specifically earmarked to Mays that were being diverted away from any public schools in the state of Mississippi. Notably, there was also federal money that was received from the state legislature that were then appropriated to Mississippi public schools to the tune of $1.6 billion. While public schools did receive those coronavirus relief funds, much of that money was distributed through loans that must be paid back. The law being challenged allows private schools to pull from a grant program that does not need to be repaid. Attorney Rob McDuff with the Mississippi Center for Justice speaks with our Mike McEwen about the case. The arguments that the other side was making were arguments we've already seen in the written briefs and were not a surprise. But if the court creates the exceptions to Section 208 that the Attorney General wants them to create and that the Private School Association wants them to create, there won't be much left of it. Uh, The framers of the Constitution in 1890 were very clear that all appropriations to schools must go to public schools. Uh, And the state is asking these justices to write in exceptions that don't exist in the language of the Constitution. So I thought the I thought uh, the three justices who conducted the argument were very attentive. Uh, it is hard to tell at this point how the entire nine justice court is going to come out, uh, but we'll wait and see. We know that they have read everybody's arguments and they'll be issuing a decision at some point. So just as a technical matter, if this wasn't an on bonk hearing, are you expecting was, there to be one? No, I think this will be the only hearing. Now, all nine vote, even when a pa- only the panel of three hears the argument. All nine end up voting. So um, we'll see. Yeah, we're, we're, and all nine will be participating in the final decision. Yeah. Is there any concern that if they were to make the exception for this case in particular, that that might establish a precedent? At the risk of, you know, using the slippery slope fallacy, is there risk? Are you worried about that precedent being established? Exactly. This, this case is about ten million dollars, which is a re- relatively small amount of money uh, if you look at the entire state government funding. But if they're able to spend ten million dollars here, the next time it may be a hundred million. The next time it may be five hundred million. And that money will be going to private schools, not public schools, which will be a clear violation of the Mississippi Constitution. And do you have any expectation as to when a ruling might be released? No, it will be several months from now. Becky Glover is the policy analyst for Parents for Public Schools, the party that brought forward the case. If you know anything about the history of public schools in Mississippi, you know that they are historically and woefully underfunded already. Um, and, and that the main source of funding 
for public schools in almost every state is the state legislature, the state itself. Um, our state legislature has chosen, it is a, a choice, uh, that they have made 25 years out of the past 27 years to not follow the, their own law uh, about how they're supposed to fund public schools in Mississippi, which are the main economic drivers uh, or one of the significant uh, contributing economic drivers for any community. Um, and they have chosen to underfund them uh, for things that include infrastructure, but also for the very basics you have to have just to be considered a school. So that state bucket of money, if you will, pays for teacher salaries and benefits. You, you're not supposed to pay district uh, administrative salaries out of it. It pays for uh, curriculum and instructional materials, so books, workbooks, textbooks, computers, whatever you're teaching from or with. Uh, the third thing it, it uh, pays for is uh, operating costs, so electricity, running water, which is part of infrastructure as well, um, broadband access, you know, internet access. But it also pays for uh, other things as well, like special education, gifted education, alternative education, as well as um, transportation. Part of that money is also supposed to go to pay for special education as well. If that's your main bucket of money and you haven't gotten an adequate amount of those dollars for 25 of the past 27 years, then you know, and if you've been in any of our public schools, you know that we have infrastructure problems galore. And at the same time that we're experiencing those infrastructure problems, uh, we also, are public schools are responsible for educating every child in the community. So currently, 90% of Mississippi's almost half a million school-age children are being educated in inadequate schools, inadequately funded, uh, and the legislature likes to point to those schools and call them failing schools. And uh, I believe it's the legislature that's failing our public schools. And when you fail public schools, you are failing at least 90% of all Mississippians. The full nine justice court is expected to rule on the case in the coming months. Coming up, an author examines the journal and life story of a black barber from Natchez. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hi, I'm Dr. Susan Buttress, host of Southern Remedies, Relatively Speaking. Join the conversation every Tuesday at 11 as we dissect issues that are important to you and your family. That's Relatively Speaking, Tuesdays only on MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Michael Guidry. A new book tells how a black free man in Natchez used his work at a barber shop to spread thoughts on freedom with other black Mississippians. It tells the story of William Johnson, who was the wealthiest and most respected black resident in Natchez before the Civil War. Author Timothy Buckner is presenting his book, The Barber of Natchez Reconsidered, at today's History is Lunch. That's at noon today at the two Mississippi museums in Jackson. He speaks with our Desiree Frazier. William Johnson, through his barbershop, what he winds up doing is is training a new generation of free men of color in, in the city of Natchez. So Johnson was born into slavery. He's set free by his white father, 
the apprentice to his brother-in-law, who was also a free man of color, who moved to Natchez from Philadelphia when he married his sister. Uh, he learned the, the trade from his, from his brother-in-law, the trade of barbering. But he also learned what it meant to be free and of color in, in a city in the, in the slave south. And so what Johnson does for the barber shop, in addition to cutting hair and spreading gossip, uh, is he trains a, a whole generation of men uh, on what it means to be both free and black in the city. Some of those men accept Johnson's ideas and some of them reject them. In talking about being in Natchez, I mean, that's the Deep South. You're saying that he was able to live as a free man. When we hear about people who were enslaved and become free being turned back over into slavery, how did that happen? That he was, was he able to move around the town at will? He was. So William Johnson's a mixed race, and, and partly that gives him a little bit of, of leeway. There's a, there's a handful, never really more than about 220 free people of color that lived in Natchez in the 19th century. But there's a, a small community there. Uh, the ones that are successful, like Johnson, the ones that, that have trades that, that serve the white community, are, are the ones that are really able to, to kind of walk that line and maintain their freedom. Johnson's materially quite successful. He owns a, a house in the city. He winds up buying a farm in the countryside. I mean, one of the things that I think has probably left Johnson off the radar of a lot of folks that study African-American history is that Johnson's a slave owner. And for some of these reasons, Johnson's able to kind of establish these ties to the white community, to, especially to the the powerful, powerful slave owners in, in, in town uh, because he shares that interest. He shares the economic interest in slavery, uh, but also through the barbershop because he's able to uh, kind of create this, this reputation as a, as a solid businessman uh, because he owns enslaved people. He's able to, they, they, they don't view him as a, as a threat to society. And sometimes they do. I mean, there are, there is a crackdown, more than one crackdown, uh, more, more than one crackdown, uh, and that's just on free people of color. And Johnson really rides that out easily, uh, but he often writes about it in his diary, and he complains about it, and he does his best to try to support other free people of color when that happens. Well, that sounds strange. He's got <laughs> slaves, but he's teaching free men of color to be barbers. How did he reconcile that? That's, I mean, that's a good question. I mean, what, what his biographers in the 50s argued is that Johnson just absorbed the same kind of ideas of white supremacy as as the uh, as, as whites in, in the city did. And I, I disagree with that. It, it's a it's kind of a finer line there with, with Johnson. So what what Johnson's interest in slavery is, is, is purely economic, I, I would suggest. Uh, he is somebody that that's always looking for opportunities to increase his wealth. And uh, and he's able to do that through. Uh, through owning enslaved people. And I, and I should say also, I mean, it is a way for him to make those connections to, to the white community so that they, they believe he's part of, of that. But he also, I mean, he also does reject some of, some of the ideas of whites as well. And, and in the diary, he, he mocks some of them. He, he, uh, he expresses anger with some of them, things that he couldn't do in person, uh, or he would be punished by, by you know, the various racist laws that, that exist in, in the 19th century in Mississippi. But but he, he, he's somebody that's, that's really protective of, of, what he, of, of that community of free people of color, right? So it's not just racial for him. That is, Johnson 
only ever refers to to folks in, in racial terms when he's complaining about his apprentices and when they're stepping out of line. That is when they're doing things that that don't really live up to his ideals. What I what I argue in the book is that what he's doing there, what he's really complaining about is is what these men are doing for their futures. That by creating these relationships with enslaved women, they're potentially lowering their status. Uh, if they have children, those children will be born enslaved because the status of slavery follows the mother, and that's going to put them in a in a tougher economic spot. Author Timothy Buckner is presenting his book, The Barber of Natchez Reconsidered, at Today's History is launched at the two Mississippi museums. Coming up, a celebration of gospel music in the state. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. For moments in black history, we salute Bo Diddley. Born in Macomb in 1928, Bo Diddley played a key role in the transition from blues music to rock and roll, influencing a host of legendary acts. A guitarist and singer, he was honored by the Mississippi Blues Commission with a Blues Trail historic marker in recognition of his enormous contribution to the development of the blues in Mississippi. Bo Diddley passed away in 2008. This has been an MPB moment in black history. I won't put us in This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Michael Guidry. Mississippi has a rich history of gospel music, from legendary choirs to singers and writers. MPB is celebrating the state's gospel history through the release of a new hour-long television program tonight, all about the sounds of gospel music. And on Saturday, tune in for a special companion radio documentary with three musicians who helped shape the state's gospel genre. Here is a preview of those two shows. My grandmother used to sing a song that said, All my help, what is it? Comes from the Lord. Oh, yes, it does. Well, gospel music means basically everything to me because I come from a, a background of a, a gospel music family. I'm Doug Williams of the Williams Brothers. My older brothers, older sisters, they all were involved in gospel music. My father uh, had a gospel group even before I was born. So naturally, it's kind of kind of a family tradition that we sung gospel music because that's, that's what we grew up around. My, my father was a professor of bricklayers. We would do that during the week. Uh, when I was, wasn't in school, I would try to help out a little bit during the summer. And on the weekends, we would on the road going somewhere to sing. So it was a continuous thing, but music was definitely on the forefront of all of our minds and our hearts. And um, little did we know that we would be doing it professionally because we just we just love singing. We love music and enjoyed doing it. But my father had a bigger vision than what we could see at the time. He, he saw something in us that we didn't even see in ourselves. Gospel, uh, well, let's say it, it really is the good news of Jesus Christ. That's what it's all about. So you, it's impossible to really sing gospel if you don't ever say anything about Jesus. <laughs> um, even though now we've done songs uh, that did not specifically say anything about God or Jesus in those songs, which were more message message type songs, uh, universal, we call them universal type songs. But uh, if to be a gospel singer, you somewhere in there, you got to call on the name of the Lord. <laughs> Jerry Mannery, I'm the executive director of the Mississippi Mass Choir. 
you, if you Google us, they'll say America's choir. Uh, you know, when we go out of the country, they'll say the world's greatest choir. Back to the beginning, Malico had Frank Williams to come off the road with the Jackson Southerners to build the, the label. So Frank still had this vision for a choir. In 1988, we uh, sent out the word all over the state of Mississippi that we was forming this choir. And so we had um, people that responded. The clarion call went out. And the response was so overwhelming. And from all over the state of Mississippi, we were able to narrow it down to 150 singers. And so we were able to actually get the... "Quote unquote big fish from every area." You know, you got the Bean families up in Tupelo. Uh, you go down to Brookhaven. You know, you got the Lillian Lilly, who was with the Joyner family. You go up in the Delta, um, Macon, Mississippi. You have Venora Brown, and and so, but we were able to really uh, garner the big fish. So we were able to get these great singers. Uh, who were great people, who understood sacrifice. Uh, the secret sauce, really, of Mississippi Mass is the sacrifice of the members. And about four weeks after the release of the project, it went number one in the country and stayed there almost a year. And so we're still trying to catch up with that project. And when you hear songs like Having You There, that song is as fresh today as it was 35 years ago. You know, when you hear uh, Near the Cross, you know, when you hear that, uh, when Frank said, this is one of the Mississippi songs, and uh, and you go back up, you go up to like the Remain to be Seen project, and on your grace and mercy, you hear this this latest scream at the beginning of it. Um, Just the spirit was so high in the room. I'm Lanny Span McBride. Uh, retired educator, and I've done some publishing of sheet music and recording of music for children, choir, adult choir, and co- collaboration with quite a few other groups. My plate is full. I love people. I love the ministry of being in the space I'm in and making a difference in any way I can. I don't know which one should come first, Gospel of Mississippi. I happen to be in Mississippi, born in Brandon, Mississippi, and of dad, my dad was pastor, the only one I knew for many years, and I was introduced to music at 12. I didn't have any aspirations to do anything but to just be who I be. My dad looked at my sister and I said, you're going to take piano lessons so you can help the church one day. I'm very godly proud of the young people that I've met and know right now. Uh, of course, the people who are my age, and we, we have camaraderie, we're partners in music. And the example that we've led, there are a lot of uh, younger musicians, and uh, I'm godly proud of what they're doing because they're, they're doing the same thing we're doing, trying to find out how I fit in the scheme of things. It's so important that we remember the journey where we came from. It's important that we remember the bridge that brought us over. Because that same bridge that brought you over, you may have to come back across it. We spent a lot of time making excuses. Even when I was in college for a while, 
I was told before I practiced my Italian arias and my German leaders, that's what required to get a music degree. I had to sing me a hymn or a gospel in the, in the practice room because my heart needed it. And so every now and then, somebody may come around, a professor and say, you, you're wasting your time with that kind of music. It's not going to last. It's not going uh, to do. You're a professional now. You're, tra- you're training to be a professional. Okay? <laughs> so I'm a professional what now? I've graduated. I've got the, the degrees. <laughs> and I still love, I love the Lord. He heard my cry. That's still a part of me. And premiering tonight at 8 on MPB TV is Hallelujah, a celebration of Mississippi gospel. It captures the 2022 Juneteenth celebration at New Horizon Church in Jackson. And on Saturday, tune back in at 6.30 p.m. to MPB Think Radio for an airing of the radio documentary featuring Jerry Mannery of the Mississippi Mass Choir, Doug Williams of the Williams Brothers, and gospel singer Lanny Spann McBride. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.